today we are once again in Proverbs, and uh, we're looking today at Proverbs 14, verse 4. Thank you to Pastor Aaron for sharing last week and uh, heard amazing things about his message, but um, so thank you, Aaron, and I'm excited to share with you today. Proverbs 14, verse 4, the title of the message today is Don't Be Afraid of Messes. Let's read beginning in verse 4. I'll read. You follow along. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Lord, I thank you for allowing me to be a part of this amazing church for the last 25 years and to serve in this role as lead pastor. And I just thank you, Lord, for these amazing men and women, these brothers and sisters who make up this church family. I just thank you so much for them. And we thank you, God, for your word. And we ask today that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us powerfully, insightfully, through your word. And we give you this time now in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You know, I grew up in an era where we rode bicycles with no helmets. In fact, me and my buddies, we would make these, these ramps, these wooden ramps that we would go flying off of, and we'd set them up in the cul-de-sac across the street from my house, and we were many little evil Knievels as, you know, we would set up a couple ramps apart, and we would see how many people we could jump over. So our friends would lay down, you know, and we'd go jumping over them to see how many, you know, we could jump over, and, and it was a, a crazy time. I grew up in a time when seatbelts were not required to wear in a car. And most of us didn't wear them. In fact, we would pile people into a car. I drove when I was 16, a, I think it was a 1967 Buick LeSabre. It was a big, huge tank of a car. It had bench seats in the front and in the back. You could put four people in the front, four people in the back, eight people. It was the Suburban before the Suburban. And uh, we would pile people into that car and drive around. I grew up in a time when we would ride in the back of pickup trucks with no seatbelts, even little kids, you know, riding in the back of, of pickup trucks and, and riding around. When I was growing up, there was no such thing as concussion protocols. If you got hit bad and got your bell rung, it was shake it off and get back out there. And we know that that has caused some problems uh, in our day and age for sure because of that. But things today are definitely geared toward being smarter and a lot more careful and a lot less carefree, or some would say careless. But some have suggested that all of the precautions that are required today has produced a generation of young people that are sort of prone to playing it safe, a generation that is unwilling to take risks. I think today's social media culture also plays into that. Instagram and Facebook, because people today, it plays into that. 
idea of just being unwilling to take risks because so often what gets presented on social media is the best parts of our lives. The perfect dates, the great vacation, the project that turned out wonderfully. We present, we love to present on social media the best of ourselves. In fact, some people go so far to Photoshop their photos to cover up wrinkles and to cover up, you know, acne and that sort of thing. But the problem with social media is that it creates a fear in people. No, I'm not talking about FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. I'm talking about FOF. I actually made this up. FOF is the fear of failing. And so often in in social media, it creates this fear of failing that I don't want to fail, so I'm not even going to try. But here's what we have to understand. Real life is messy. Real life is full of failures. Real life is full of mistakes. In fact, following Jesus is messy as well. Because you see, we make mistakes. And following Jesus and serving Jesus involves, though, being willing to take risks. You see, that's the life of faith that God calls us to. In fact, it was one of my mentors who said, Every Christian should at least once in their lives attempt something so big that if God is not in it, it's doomed to fail. And you know, the Bible is full of stories of people who took risks. People who took great steps of faith, believing that God was going to work. And the result of that oftentimes was that God did something incredible, something that was beyond human comprehension. And that, my friends, is the life that Jesus invites us to be a part of. Let's look once again at our text. The writer of Proverbs says, where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Maybe you've read that before and thought, what in the world does that mean? I think the New Living Translation is helpful. It says, without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. So let me ask you this question. What do oxen leave behind? Oxen patties, right? (laughs) They leave oxen messes. In fact, I love the way that the Passion Translation puts this. It says, the only clean stable is an empty stable. So if you want the the work of an ox and to enjoy an abundant harvest, you'll have a mess or two to clean up. You see, a farmer can boast of having a clean barn. Man, my barn is spick and span, but that will be a barn in which there's no fruit. There's no harvest. Where there's a harvest, there is also going to be messes in a barn as well as in a life. Think about Peter. Peter was a guy who took a risk. It happened one night when the disciples were in a boat heading out over the Sea of Galilee, which was really a large lake. And they're in the midst of a storm, and they're really trying to row in hard to get through. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking out to them on the water. They thought it was a ghost. Jesus says to them, hey, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and come to you. Now, every time I read that, I think, you know, the ghost could say, Peter, come, you know. But Jesus says, it is I, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat, 
And he starts walking on water. And we're not sure how far Peter got, whether it was two steps or 10 steps or 20 feet, but Peter walked on water. But then what happened? He took his eyes off of Jesus. He starts looking at the wind and the waves. He gets horizontal, in other words, and he begins to sink. We could say that Peter ended up all wet, but Peter walked on water. He was the only one of the disciples to walk on water. He had that as a part of his resume. I mean, imagine that, his ministry resume. Acts 2 preached and 3,000 people got saved, comma, walked on water. (laughs) That's a great story to tell, you know, your grandkids, right? Peter walked on water. But listen, if we fear failing, we're never going to get out of the boat. In fact, it's been said, fear is the dark room where negatives are developed. Fear of failing can produce a negative mindset where we're unwilling to take a step of faith. But I say it's better to try and fail than to never try at all. You know, take a baseball player. Professional baseball player, if he bats 300, he'll make it into the Hall of Fame. If his lifetime average is 300, I mean, Tony Gwynn's a great example of this. He batted 338 over his lifetime. He's in the hall of faith. But batting 300 means that you failed seven out of 10 times. Now, I would rather be the guy that plays every single day and bats 300, which means I fail seven out of 10 times, than the guy who got up once, went one for one, which means he batted 1,000, but never played after that. So his, I batted 1,000, but he never, he didn't have a career. He didn't play. I'd rather be the guy that keeps playing. And the Christian life is meant to be a life of faith where we are actively walking with Jesus and trusting in Jesus. It's not meant to be a life of passivity. It's meant to be a life of action. It's not meant to be a life of being stagnant. It's to be a life of movement where we're trusting in the Lord. I love when people post great quotes on social media. And a friend of mine posted one a couple days ago that he wrote, and I loved it. And my friend Josh Blevins, who pastors in Missouri, he said this, true peace does not come through enacting measures of self-preservation. It comes through consistent and intentional trust in the Lord. I love that. Because oftentimes we think true peace happens when we're playing it safe. I'm going to play it safe and I'll be at peace. True, true peace happens when we're, you know, when we're in self-preservation. But no, true peace happens when we're consistently and intentionally trusting in the Lord. So in the remainder of our time today, I want to give to you what I would call the ABCs of stepping out in faith. So if you're taking notes, here's the ABCs. The A stands for attempt something for God. Attempt something for God. Do something. Don't wait for something to come to you. Attempt something for God. I love the story in 1 Samuel chapter 14 where Jonathan and his armor bearer, the army of Israel is in a battle against the Philistines. And it's kind of a ceasefire moment in the battle when Jonathan says to his armor bearer, you know, God doesn't need a whole army to save. He could save with just the two of us. So what do you say? What if we go over tomorrow to the garrison of the Philistines and and we just see what God might want to do? 
And his armor bearer says to him, sounds great. Let's do all that is in your heart. Now, what a guy. What a friend. I mean, he doesn't question Jonathan. He's like, he knew Jonathan was a man of faith. And so he's like, okay, this is what God's doing. This is what he's showing you. Let's go for it. And so this was the plan. That they head over and they kind of hide in the rocks and then they're going to pop up, and Jonathan says, you know, we'll pop up, we'll show ourselves to the uh, Philistines, and if they say, hey, you guys stay right there, we'll come up to you, we'll know God's not in this, and we'll hightail it out of here. But if they say, hey, you guys come down here, and we'll show you a thing or two, then we'll know that God is in it. Now, I ask you this question. What would be the more logical thing for the Philistines to say It wouldn't be logical for them to say, hey, you guys stay there, we'll come up to you, because that could be the setup of an ambush, right? I mean, there could be a whole army hiding in the rocks. It would be the more logical thing to say, hey, you guys want some of us, come down here, which is is what they lay out. And so they, they do it the next day, and they get up, and they show themselves, and the Philistines, sure enough, say, hey, you two, come down here, and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan's like, all right, man, God is on our side, and they go marching down. And God gives them a great victory that day over the Philistines. They were willing to take a step of faith. And listen, you want to see God work in your life, attempt something for God. It was William Carey, the great missionary to India and Ecuador, who said this, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. In other words, don't be afraid to step out and see what God might want to do because you know what happens when you do that? It creates opportunities for God to do something in you and to do something through you. So A, attempt something for God. B, believe completely in God. And here we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that great classic story of David and Goliath. And we see where the army of the Philistines are on one hill, the army of the Israelites are on another hill, and down in the valley between them is the valley of Elah. And out every day comes this giant of a man by the name of Goliath. He's nine foot six. His breastplate weighs 125 pounds. The spear that he would throw weighed 25 pounds. Guys, next time you go to the gym, pick up a 25 pound dumbbell and see how far you can throw it. You know, I mean, Goliath was a giant of a man. And every single day he would come down into that valley And he would issue a challenge. He would say to the army of Israel, send me a man. And if he defeats me, we'll be your servants. But if I defeat him, we'll be uh, your servants. And every single day, the Bible tells us that he came down there 40 straight days. Twice a day, he's going and issuing this challenge. And there's no takers because the whole army of Israel is shaking in their sandals. They want nothing to do with this guy. King Saul issues a, a, an incentive. He says, whoever defeats the giant, I, his family won't have to pay taxes for the rest of his life, and I'll throw in my daughter in marriage. And still, no takers. And every day, here comes Goliath with his challenge. And one day, little David, young guy, about 15 years old. How many of you guys over here are 15? Let me see your hands. Show of hands. Raise them high. If you're 15 or younger, okay? 
and 15, okay? Several of you, 15 years old, okay? Here's David, about 15, comes cruising down. And he hears Goliath. And he has a completely different reaction. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Now I ask you this question, why did David have a different perspective? I suggest to you, it's because of David's view of God. It's because of his focus on God. You see, the scholars who put together the chronological Bible tell us that it was right before this time that David writes Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, this is what David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. So David, he's a shepherd. And he's out with his sheep one night and he's just, you know, fixated on the stars and he's just blown away by the awesomeness of God. And he pens this psalm about the glory of God. And it's right after this that David comes on an errand from his dad to bring food to his brothers who were in the army that he comes upon this scene and he sees Goliath completely different. He doesn't see a giant. He sees a man who is making fun of his God. David, you see, believed in a big God. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of old, great Bible commentator, he was preaching at his alma mater, Princeton University, which used to be a Bible college or a Bible, a Christian school in the day. And his theology professor, Robert Wilson, was sitting right in the front row. And afterwards, Professor Wilson came up to Donald and said, Donald, that was a great message. And he says, you're going to go far because you are a big godder. And Donald was like, big godder? What do you mean by that? And he says, well, some of my students come back and they're little godders. And what I mean is they have a little god. Their god can't part the Red Sea. He can't raise the dead. He can't heal. You know, he, he can't do anything. But you, you believe you have a big god and you're going to go far. And Barnhouse did. He became a great preacher. In fact, he was the one who really started the whole idea of Bible studies, of messages being put forth out on the radio. So if you like to listen to K-Wave today and Bible teaching on K-Wave or Christian radio, you can thank Donald Gray Barnhouse. He wrote some amazing Bible commentaries that are still being used today. And all these years later, this guy's legacy carries on because he was a man of faith who believed in a big God. He left a long and lasting legacy. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, your view of God will impact your willingness to take steps of faith. If you believe in a big God, you'll be willing to take big steps of faith. But if you believe in a small God, that will serve as your unwillingness to step out in faith at all. It was J.B. Phillips who said this, Many men and women today are living often with inner dissatisfaction, without any faith in God at all, and this is because they have not found with their adult minds a God who is big enough. Maybe that's why Jesus said that to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to become like little children. Because little kids believe God can do anything, right? 
I mean, little kids, let's, let, let's pray. There's a, there's a need. You know, let's pray. I mean, big or small, they believe that their God can do anything. But oftentimes as adults, we come to a place where we start to analyze and rationalize and it fill our, fills our hearts with a, a, a lack or a, a sense of unbelief. David had a big view of God. Instead of seeing a giant, he saw a man. He comes out and Goliath looks at him and goes, what am I? You send a little kid out to me. Are you guys serious? And David says to him, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, and this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I love this. David doesn't come out and say, man, I'm going to take you down, dude. No, he says, I'm coming to you in the name of my God. And he's going to give you, give me victory today. It's not my strength, it's his strength. It's not my bigness, it's his bigness. And when we have a big view of God, it turns our mountains into molehills and giants into midgets. And so David takes down Goliath. And we see here that David's faith ends up being contagious. Because the whole Philistine army, they begin to to flee, and the whole army of Israel, they get fired up and seeing you know, what, what God allowed David to do, and they went out that day, pursued the Philistines, and had a great victory over them. So the ABCs of stepping out in faith, attempt something for God, B, believe completely in God, and C, continually look to God. You see, here's what we need to understand, is that having faith doesn't mean that you will never have doubts. Great men and women of God have struggled with doubt. The key, though, is to keep looking to the Lord, to keep your eyes on the Lord. I remember what Pastor Chuck used to always say, Chuck Smith. He would say, when you don't know, when you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what's going on, fall back on what you do know. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes focused on what you do know about God. But sometimes it's easy for us to lose sight of God, isn't it? It happened to Elijah. Remember Elijah? He has his big showdown on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal. They're going to have a contest to see who the real God is, Jehovah, Yahweh, or Baal. And so the 450 prophets of Baal, man, they do their thing. You know, they're chanting and everything for all day long. And, and the, the contest was going to be solved by which God would bring down fire from heaven to consume the, the altar. And nothing happens. They're out there all day long. Elijah's making fun of them. And they're, you know, finally they get tired of chanting. And Elijah, with one simple prayer, boom, the fire comes down. And the children of Israel, they're just fired up because of this. And they go and they end up killing these 450 prophets of Baal. But Queen Jezebel, she doesn't like this. And she says, man, she's going to have Elijah's head on a platter that day. And so this great prophet who has this great moment of faith, what does he do? He runs out into the wilderness completely scared, completely filled with doubt. He's crying out to God, I'm the last of all of your prophets. And he ends up in a mountain area. And he's in a cave. And it's in that moment that Elijah gets centered once again. When he gets his focus on the Lord and God speaks to him in a still, small voice. What's interesting about that, though, is 
prior to God coming in that still small voice, it says that there was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. There was an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. There was a mighty rushing wind, but God wasn't in the mighty rushing wind. In other words, all this stuff is going on around Elijah horizontally, but he's not focused on that. He's focused vertically, and God comes and speaks to him in a still, small voice. We keep looking, continue to look to God. Think about Paul, the apostle. Acts chapter 18. He comes to the city of Corinth. And Paul does what he always does when he comes to a city. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches Jesus to the Jews. But the Jews wanted nothing to do with Paul's Jesus. So they rejected him. So then Paul, this is what he would do in city after city. He goes and finds another place to preach. And this time it happens to be the home of a Gentile that's right next to the synagogue. And he starts preaching Jesus there. And the Gentiles start coming and they're getting saved. They're giving their life to Jesus. But not only Gentiles, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, shows up with his whole family. And they all get saved. It's like a radical thing God's doing. And all of a sudden, Paul gets filled with fear. You see, this has been the, the pattern that had happened in Paul's life up that time. He goes into a city, goes to the synagogue. The Jews reject him. He goes to the Gentiles, preaches. They accept Jesus. The Jews get mad, and they beat Paul. They stone Paul with rocks. They put him in jail. There were riots. And so all of a sudden, Paul's thinking, deja vu. Here we go again. And this is going to be the worst of all, because Crispus, the head guy of the, the synagogue, just got saved and his whole family. And that night, Jesus appears to, to Paul and says, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. He looks to the Lord, and God speaks to him. And you know what the result of that was? Paul dug in. Paul dug in. He ended up staying there in Corinth. For a year and a half, it was the longest place he ever ministered to, aside from Ephesus, where he stayed three years. He digs in. He believes the word of the Lord. I have many people in this city. No one's going to touch you. I have many people in this city, Paul. They just don't know it yet. But you're going to preach, and they're going to come to me. And so Paul dug in, and the result was God did an incredible work there in Corinth. He continued to look to the Lord. Think about Peter again, as he's walking on the water. I mean, he's doing great. His problems start when he gets horizontal. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he starts looking at the wind and the waves, and that's when he sinks. But imagine, imagine what would have happened if Peter just would have kept his eyes on Jesus the whole time. He might have walked out to Jesus, they would have turned around and walked back to the boat together. And I think the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to get us, constantly saying to us, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't get all wrapped up in what's going on around you. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord because it's from Him who comes our help. You see, there's nothing that can come into your life, no storm, no giant, no enemy that He can't. You know, back in the day, some of you remember this, there was a movement, it's still around today, but just not as big as it used to be, called the Promise Keepers Movement. 
And they'd hold these big men's rallies, oftentimes in stadiums, and, and, and they were great, affected a lot of men. But the whole premise sort of centered around an idea that a bunch of men would pledge to keep a promise to God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but to be honest with you, most of the promises I've made to God, I've broken them. I don't know about you. But we're all sinners. Most of the promises I've made, I've broken. And somebody said once, you know, I think what God's really looking for is not promise keepers, but promise believers. Those who believe in the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful even when we are faithless. A God who says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his presence was singing. Paul grabbed a hold of the promise of God and he dug in and he stayed there for a year and a half. Someone said, when God makes a promise, faith believes it, hope anticipates it, and patience quietly waits for it. So brothers and sisters, friends, church family, can I encourage you? Don't be afraid to take risks for the Lord. Because that's oftentimes how we're surprised by God, when we're willing to take a risk. You know, we as a church, we enjoy taking risks. Now, one of the areas we never take risks is with finances. So we believe wholeheartedly that we are called to be good stewards. But one place where we love to take risks is on people. Young guys, we've taken a lot of risks over the years on young guys who came through here that we saw had good hearts and potential. I think of Jeremy Camp when he just got out of Bible college and he started attending a church here. And back then, Jeremy Camp, I got some pictures I could show you, man. Jeremy Camp was this goofy kid from Indiana. He did not have the cool factor like he has now at all. And we started letting, you know, Jeremy do worship on Sunday nights here. And I got to be honest with you, some weeks it was awesome, and other weeks it was a train wreck, you know? But we saw something in that guy, something just in his heart, and God had big plans for him. I think of Phil Wickham, who also started doing worship here when he was actually in high school. I recently uh, interviewed Phil on my podcast, and he was thanking me for taking a risk on him, being willing to do that. And I remember the first Wednesday night that we had him and another guy by the name of Sean Semino, who's in the band Foster the People, and, and uh, Sean, they, they were leading worship together. And I told the church, I said, you know, you guys, you may not like their style, but get to know these guys, and you're going to love their hearts. God used them. He's done incredible things with them. I think about Evan Wickham, Phil's brother, great musician in his own right, but he started here as, a, as an intern in junior high, and then he became our junior high pastor. I remember the first time ever that I had Evan teach on a Sunday night here in the sanctuary, he comes up to the pulpit with his Bible and two big yellow pads, notepads, Not one, but two. And he lays them both down in his Bible in between. I'm thinking, what in the world is he doing? I'm thinking, this is going to be the longest Bible study ever. He's got two notepads. And what happened was, is Evan didn't take the time to put all of his notes into one, you know, thing. So he had two. So he starts with on the left side and he's talking and flipping, you know, his pages. And then he moves to the right side. And and it was, it was interesting. I'll just say that. Okay. 
And I remember afterwards asking his wife, so how do you think Evan did? And Evan was standing there, and Ev- Sandy's so sweet, but she can be very blunt. And she looks and she said, um, she goes, it, was, it was all right. It was kind of all over the place, though. And then she goes, but that's kind of how you talk, Evan, you know? And, and it was so amazing. But I look at Evan today, and he's pastoring an amazing church down in San Diego, and God has so gifted that guy. You know, I was the, I've had the privilege of teaching at Calvary Chapel Bible College for 20 years now. And out of that has come some guys that were in my class. Guys that today are senior pastors of great churches that came here that we saw young guys, no experience, fresh out of Bible college, as raw as can be, but potential. Guys like Jason Duff, Trevor O'Keefe, Mark Orozco. These guys that God is using in incredible ways. I heard today, I don't know where he's at, but that Robert and Jackie Nettles are here. And uh, here you are, right here. And, you know, here's, here's a guy who, I don't know what he was doing before he, uh, you know, went and planted a church. But, you know, we sent him out like, okay, God bless, hope this works. And, you know, and, and God has done a great thing with them in Racine, uh, Wisconsin. Love taking risks with people. We've taken a lot of risk in missions. Going over to Russia, having no idea what we're doing. But hey, let's just go. Like Jonathan is on Let's just go and see what God might want to do. And God has worked in some incredible ways. And tons of churches were planted. I'll never forget the night that I was preaching in Kaluga, Russia. And this was a, a city where we took a team of uh, high school students. I think we actually had a hundred kids on that trip with us. And uh, two big buses that we took. And we w- spent the whole week going to these various um, schools where we would go. And they basically told us this, that you can't proselytize, but um, if they ask you why you're here, you can tell them. So it was like, great, that's awesome. So we'd go to a class and the class would line up and they go, so why are you, why did you guys come to Russia? Well, okay, we came to talk to you about Jesus, you know, that's it. You know, we go through this thing, and then we would invite them to a concert that was happening that night. And the first night, there's like 600 students that showed up. The next night, there was 800. The night after that, there was 1,200. The night after that, there was 1,500 people. And George Bryson, he was leading all the trips at that time, and he comes up to me and says, do not give an altar call. And I'm like, what? That's why we're here. He goes, man, there will not be enough room up front for all the people. I'm like, okay. He goes, just have them stand or something. So I'm preaching that night. And I give the invitation, and I am not kidding you. 1,500 people packed in this room, they all stand. Now, I'm preaching through an interpreter, and I looked at the interpreter, and I'm like, what did you say to them? You know? <laughs> I'm like, I, I thought he was like saying, who wants a free TV, you know, and they, they all stand, you know? And he's like, no, I said exactly what you said. So I'm like, well, tell them all to sit down again. And I say, okay, I want you to really understand what it means to follow Jesus. I'm like making it even harder, you know, like to respond. And I give the invitation, and everybody but about three people stand. And give their life to the Lord. And the church gets birth there. I remember a group of us, eight of us, going over to Eastern Europe to just see what God might want to do in Yugoslavia and Hungary. And in the course of this trip where we had no idea what we were doing, God burst two churches that resulted in 
set many other churches starting throughout Hungary and Yugoslavia and then on into to Italy. And we've just watched and we've seen how God has moved in just a sense of, hey, let's just take a risk. Let's just see what God might want to do. Let's just step out. I think of Phil and Rebecca McKay. Phil was an assistant in our high school ministry. And he comes to me and says, I think God wants me to plant a church in Costa Rica. And he gives me, you know, the verses and he gives me the, the confirmation. Now you gotta understand, Phil and Rebecca were as white as you can be, okay? Two white, white people. And neither of them spoke Spanish. And they're feeling led to go to this Spanish speaking country. And it's like, okay, let's just see what God might want to do. And we send them down there and we send teams to come and help them. And God bursts an amazing church. And this church grows to the point where they're, they're able to build pro- by property right by the high school. They built a, a beautiful building. And then after seven years, Phil hands it over to one of the nationals. And he's now pastoring Calvary Chapel in Reno, Nevada. It's amazing. And currently, as we're taking steps of faith and just say, let's see what God wants to do in New Zealand or in the Philippines or in Guatemala or down in Mexico. And every single time, it's, it's a risk. And for all the success stories that there have been, there have also been failures. There have also been messes. There have been things that didn't work out right, that didn't turn out real well. So there's messes, but there's also been a lot of fruit. A lot of fruit in the barn. So as we close today, can I just say this? We are living in in a day and age of great uncertainty. But I want to remind you of this. Things are not uncertain with God. He knows exactly what is going on. And so let's be a group of people. You and me, I'm speaking to myself. Let's be a group of people who attempt great things for God and who are expecting great things from God and who are going to continually be looking to God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are a big God that nothing is impossible for you. That there's nothing that, no giant, no mountain, no storm that can stand against you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a group of people who know that we have a big God. Lord, I pray that there would be a sense of a contagious faith that would well up in us. Lord, I pray for some of our young people over here to, to, to my left, that you would be raising up in, in some of them, Davids, Daniels, Esthers, Jonathans, young people that are willing to take risks, to believe in a God who can do great things in and through a life that is simply just available. Lord, I pray that that would be the case with with all of us as well. Lord, we know that we are living in crazy times. And this is not a time to be stagnant. It's not a time to be passive. 
But Lord, we want to be people who are on the move. One step behind you as you are moving and working in lives, in hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you so much for this church family. And I pray today just blessing upon them. That Lord, you would be that you would just stir us up to follow you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.